Well, hello, everybody. Thank you for joining my inaugural episode on Colin. You know, I guess I'll just start by explaining a bit about why I joined Colin and the potential I see it having, um, which is, you know, in my experience over and over again, throughout the years, whenever I have some kind of dust up with somebody on the internet, right, typically on Twitter, or maybe even we take it to email or direct message and what have you, almost invariably, if I offer, or if they offer to take the discussion to some other format that is kind of less charged, than the kind of snippets of warfare that is kind of uh, representative of, of Twitter in particular, um, you'll find that you almost, without exception, can come to some measure of agreement or at least establish good faith uh, over the course of that conversation. Now, this is not a new insight, right? I mean, one of the um, services uh, or one of the platforms that I've followed for a long time maybe over like 12 years or something now, it's been blocking heads, which was founded by Bob Wright. Um, and which at the time was sort of a novel innovation because this was before anybody could just easily with the snap of a finger, set up a video chat or set up some kind of two way call on the internet. Uh, Bob Wright, uh, in founding blocking heads actually had to kind of create almost new technology or at least a new setup to facilitate uh, people who might've uh, been in some kind of conflict or dispute through their blogs at the time, generally uh, to have almost a face-to-face -face discussion or at least have a discussion that entailed direct uh, engagement through, through audio or video. And uh, you know, what you, what you found, and you can even go back and watch some of those episodes um, from as early as 2005, when people who really had animosity against each other as expressed through the text of their exchanges, right? Then it was over blogs, primarily. Once you kind of pair them together in this more direct format, uh, you know, it was much more civil. I know civility is kind of cliche, but it, it led to almost invariably realizations or uh, the establishment of some measure of good faith. And so I think Colin is actually the next step in that, in just its interface, in just its kind of technological premise. Um, and you know, it seems like it's taken the best of Clubhouse from earlier this year, which I was pretty immersed in for like two months or something, but then that bubble seemed to pop. Uh, but, you know, Clubhouse actually had a similar effect, I found, in that, you know, with a few marginal exceptions of like trolls who were just going out of their way to get a rise out of you, uh, it really did kind of, I don't know, break impasses that might have otherwise existed on other forms of social media between myself and people who thought they disliked me or disagreed with me or whatever. Uh, but once we were kind of in dialogue 
uh, that seemed to to lessen. And so I think you know Colin actually is pretty promising in that regard. And um, and so you know I always encourage interaction and encourage people to give me feedback, even if it's negative feedback. And then we can kind of get to the bottom of some stuff, um, whether it's what I happen to be writing and talking about currently or anything else that might be of interest to you. Um, now for this inaugural episode, the plan was to bring in a gentleman who I had had a bit of a contentious exchange with yesterday. And uh, this person had been criticizing me because I expressed the view that the public figures who in January or February of 2019 went on social media or went on TV, went somewhere with a very public role and uh, kind of expressed as a factual matter that a hate crime happened in the Jesse Smollett instance and how horrible it was. And even in some cases, they tried to connect it to broader political dynamics and, you know, issued fervent denunciations that were clearly premature at the very least. And the disagreement, I guess, that this person expressed, his name is Tom, he's a streamer of some kind. Uh, The disagreement that was expressed was that, you know, why should anybody have an obligation even if they're a public figure, even if they're a celebrity, uh, to make amends or to take account of their participation in really what turned out to be uh, the propagation of a hoax, right? Or at least that's what the jury seemed to find this week in the at the conclusion of the Smollett trial in Chicago. And this person's point, and I guess to paraphrase, was that, no, I mean, uh, why should, for example, like an Elliot Page uh, be required to adhere to standards of accuracy that might be associated with, I don't know, a journalist or a politician? And for, you know, for one thing, the legions of politicians who came out almost reflexively when that Jesse Smollett news first broke in 2019 and issued these very definitive statements uh, about the causation and about the uh, culpability for the purported attack. Almost none of them, as far as I'm aware, and correct me if I'm wrong, virtually none of them have said that they made an error or that they were premature in coming to conclusions. I mean, one thing that you really don't want from a elected official, I would think, somebody that wields state power, is for them to be overeager or them to be inclined toward making sweeping rash judgments about important issues, right? Because that could actually generate real damage. And, you know, the reason why I think that there's this extra obligation for even a celebrity to kind of take stock of their error in this case was because it wasn't just that they were factually wrong or that they had made a misjudgment, right? It was that they actively propagated fear and anxiety and um, they actively created a situation 
where people were understandably terrified at this event. And so, like, if you take an action as a public figure whereby your words lead to the stoking of groundless fears and the generation of unfounded frenzy, then I would think just as like an ethical person, you, even if you're all only a pop star or an actor or whatnot, you have an obligation, I, I would think, to account for that. But it's just not happened in this Jussie Smollett case. And that's what I was going to discuss in further detail with this gentleman, Tom. But um, as he was trying to install Colin uh, this afternoon, uh, you have to update your iOS on the iPhone, apparently. And uh, it's taken longer for him to get that update through than he anticipated. So hopefully he'll be able to arrive soon, or if not, we could do it again uh, at a later time. Um, but I, you know, the reason why I'm sort of interested in this is not because I think that there's a lack of coverage of the Jesse Smollett trial, right? I mean, it's been debated pretty ad nauseum at this point. I, I think I'm interested in more of a second order concern. And I'm curious what anybody else who's in the room now uh, might think. The second concern is like, what is the obligation of somebody with a public profile if it comes to pass that they were a participant in propagating a hoax, right? So for my purposes, I obviously have a public profile that is nowhere near on the same level as like an Elliot Page or Stephen Colbert or a Katy Perry or an Emma Watson or any of these other people who jumped to conclusions about the nature of that purported hate crime attack in January of 2019. Um, but, you know, if, if it were me and I kind of unwittingly had been genuinely snookered by a hoaxer, right, and in kind of expressing my support for that hoaxer contributed to the propagation of the hoax in a way, in legitimizing it or giving it more amplification that I would think for one thing, journalistically, it would be my obligation to admit that I committed an error, right? Or, and even apologize for it, try to understand what led to my having an error like that and try to improve going forward. Now, journalistically, I think it's all the more necessary to do that. And there are plenty of pundits and people kind of peripherally associated with the media world who also jumped wrongly to conclusions during that time. Uh, so journalistically, I think there's like an extra level of ethical obligation there for you to not just pretend like you didn't commit this error. Uh, but I think it goes beyond journalism, right? I mean, even if I wasn't a journalist, even if I was somebody who had a public platform in some other arena, um, I would still think it would be a good idea to be bound by basic standards of factual, factual accuracy. And on top of that, if my insufficient adherence to factual accuracy, like I mentioned before, created or contributed to a firestorm that caused genuine anxiety in the populace, that caused people to genuinely fear that they could be subject to violence, then you know, that's a harm that I am in some sense responsible for causing. 
And if you cause a genuine harm, um, then I think you have just a general ethical responsibility to redress that harm. And if these celebrities don't feel they have that ethical responsibility of redress, then I think that kind of calls into question their broader ethical worldview, right? Or their broader ethical philosophy as to how they could, how they must conduct themselves. Like if you're Katy Perry, right? You're one of the most influential and prominent pop stars in the country or even the world. And your words do have weight. I mean, a lot of people follow you. And if you're commenting on current affairs, people who don't follow the news or otherwise have only have the most casual attachment to like a, the news cycle, uh, they're going to be getting their information from you. I mean, you have genuine influence on your followers, not because they buy your albums, but because they view you as a leader in a way, right? So if you, if it turns out that you help propagate a hoax, like don't you have an obligation to those followers to kind of apprise them of that fact and let them know that you are going to try to not fall victim or fall prey to such hoaxes in the future? Uh, if not, I think, or if you just want to cover it up or pretend like it didn't happen, then I, I do think it's reasonable to say that you, you're almost acting with a kind of malice or you're acting with such disregard for basic ethics that it's reasonable to infer some kind of malice, even if it's malice by omission. So let me just read to you what Katy Perry said on January 29th, 2019. And again, like, I mean, I know it can seem trivial to be focusing on Katy Perry, right? It's not like she's a philosopher king or something, but, or queen. Well, maybe she is a queen, actually. But here's what she said, standing with and sending love to Justice Smollett today. This is a racist hate crime and is disgusting and shameful to our country. That's just, that's, that's a statement of fact, Okay. And again, I recognize the absurdity in like very closely analyzing the composition of a Katy Perry tweet. But still, again, if you just assume that she does have outsized influence, at least on a segment of her population, and she's making a statement of fact, quote, this is a racist hate crime. And now we know with as much certainty as we're going to get that it was not a racist hate crime, but rather a hoax, I would think that she as a public figure does owe her followers and just the public in general some accounting of what she got wrong there and why it was an error for her to respond in that overly certain way at the time, right? Because again, not just as a matter of factual accuracy, I know she's not a journalist, I know she's not a politician, but as a matter of her having contributed to the propagation of groundless anxieties within society. Um, but it, it appears that there's just no cultural incentive for these individuals who did make an error to have to account for it. And I think that does get to something broader happening in the culture, right? I mean, if if the political dynamics around this... mainstream segments of the culture producing industry to hold to account the, the, the giant celebrities 
who were complicit in the propagation of the hoax, right? I mean, so I don't even have to spell that out for you, right? If, you know, in January, 2019, you know, a white celebrity said that they were attacked by a gang of leftist, you know, people of color or something, and that turned out to be a hoax, there would be just as much obligation, I would say, to make amends for that at, if you commented prematurely. But also, I think it's pretty indisputable that there would be a general chorus of demands that like a Katy Perry type figure who contributed to that hoax or legitimized it, that they then come out and admit their error and apologize or do something that acknowledges wrongdoing, right? Which they're just not doing. And, you know, in the, and also, I mean, you have now a sort of sensibility among these celebrities where it's almost expected that they will also be activists. Like, even if you're not that familiar with Katy Perry or her musical output or anything having to do with her, I mean, she's, she campaigned with Hillary Clinton. She's involved in promotion of kind of like LGBT issues and whatnot. Like she's taken on an activist role by marshalling her platform as a pop star to give extra resonance to the issues she advocates for. And so you know, it would be one thing if she were just a fully apolitical celebrity and never waited on the stuff anyway. But like that's almost no longer tenable for most celebrities where they're almost in- inevitably kind of embroiled in these cultural conflicts. Um, but like Katy Perry made an overt choice over the course of her career as an adult pop star to become an advocate. And you'd think that you know, it's, it's, if you consciously chose to do that, there ought to be an attendant obligation to like make sure that your public statements at least are based in reality. And if they're not, if you made an error, then you account for it, right? But they're just not doing it. I think that has all everything to do with cultural incentives. And, you know, there are plenty of other celebrities that I could mention along these lines. You know, Emma Watson, January 30th, 2019, said that she was disgusted by the ugly prejudice and bigotry behind this violence. And, like, look, again, I'm not overly preoccupied with the public statements or doings of Emma Watson. She's an actor. Great. Good for her. But she's also gone out of her way to use her profile as an actor to engage in political debates, to be an activist or an advocate. I mean, just this fall, she hosted a panel at the UN climate change conference in Glasgow, which all like the major world leaders attended and which was a major event, right? Like she got there because of her embracing this activist type role that she was able to acquire because of the prominence she uh, garnered from her status as an actor. Right. So like if you're an Emma Watson, I understand from a PR perspective why you just ignore that this thing you commented on two and a half years ago or three years ago turned out to be a hoax and you maybe unwittingly propagated the hoax. Or, or legitimized it in the public arena. Uh, like if I were her PR advisor, which I'm not, but if they were, I'd probably say, yeah, let it pass. Don't even comment on it. Whatever. But like, that's a PR move. That's not an ethical move. That's about maintaining your image. That's about not uh, bringing potentially negative attention to yourself 
and about just kind of making the right calculations to kind of come out of this unblemished. So, I mean, I understand that logic, um, but at the same time, PR logic is not the same as ethical logic, right? So if I did something wrong or if I made an error uh, of judgment, it might be more prudent for me from a PR perspective to just ignore it. But, you know, I think I have an ethical obligation to not ignore it, to uh, confess or admit that I made an error and to, at the very least, try to demonstrate how I'm improving based on the experience of having committed the error. Um, but, you know, these, these celebrities and uh, activists and such, they don't feel that obligation. So I think that actually is important, uh, not because Katy Perry or Emma Watson are particularly important, right? I mean, all they are, are influential, but because of just the incentive structure in which they are situated. Like if the incentive structure was different, they would be kind of forced uh, in a kind of non-literal sense, they would be compelled to, to, to account for their propagation of a hoax, but they're just, you know, they're almost responding to the incentives rationally. So I can't, I, in that sense, I can't begrudge them. I mean, it is rational to, to not bring additional attention to yourself on this subject. Uh, but, you know, as a journalist or as a critic or as somebody who's not bound by those same strictures of public relations, I do think that there is a need to draw attention to the uh, lack of ethics that is clearly evident in how they're operating. And, um, you know, if you're a politician, for God's sake, as pretty much every prominent Democrat did at the time, not every, but many prominent Democrats, you know, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Biden, uh, and on and on and on, they, Bernie Sanders as well, they went out of their way. Some of them because they were trying to generate support in a Democratic presidential primary. But they went out of their way to just state with total certitude that this was a hate crime and that it was even, by implication, the, the responsibility of like Trump or right-wing people in the United States that, for creating an environment that could lead to a crime like this. So, I mean, obviously, if you're a politician, there's a different set of considerations. Uh, but I guess the point I'm trying to make that is that even if you're just a, quote, celeb, even if you're just a Katy Perry or an actor or Emma Watson, you know, I, I think that there is a, still some semblance of an obligation. And this is what I was going to be discussing with uh, the gentleman, Tom, and hopefully he will be able to get the app loaded or get his update through. But if not, we'll do it again in the future. Um, yeah, so I mean, I guess the, the, the reason I'm drawn to this is because back in the day, you know, when I was a philosophy student, or like if I'm diagnosing myself, I was interested in epistemology, right? And I think there is sort of an interesting epistemological dimension to this, right? Like what is the obligation of a public figure to ensure that they are putting forth an epistemology that is grounded in factual accuracy, or if their statements of knowledge produce harm, 
or are predicated on falsehoods, what is then the attendant obligation for them to take stock of that afterwards? And clearly, <laughs> it would be hard to imagine that a Katy Perry or an Emma Watson, although maybe with Emma Watson, I mean, she did, she did study at Brown, if I'm, if I'm not wrong about that. So it's possible that she actually has some familiarity with the, these issues. But even if you haven't, right, even if you're just a Katy Perry and like your entire life has been dominated by being a pop star, I think there, there is kind of a way of being or a way of knowing that you are projecting out into the universe just by dint of your massive platform, right? So if you are projecting certain epistemological standards, meaning how do you process knowledge and then transmit that knowledge to the public that has no obligation kind of ingrained within it to make amends if you commit a relatively grievous error and an error that not only was factually inaccurate, but produced harms in stoking this kind of groundless anxiety around a purported hate crime that was now just to the best extent we have available, don't disprove it. You are, you are kind of producing an epistemology of your own, right? I mean, you're constructing maybe unknowingly, probably unknowingly, but nonetheless, you're, you're, you're putting forth uh, this epistemological construction that says, look, if you create a harm like this uh, through your statements of knowledge, then the best thing for you to do is just pretend you didn't commit the error. And I think that could like seep down into the wider public where they, if they see somebody with the influence of Katy Perry behaving in this way, they could think that it's the ethical thing to do, or they at least are not being exposed to the ethical dimensions of making an error like this. Um, and so I think, you know, it's not just a matter of, oh, like the Hollywood libs or the, the pop stars who are grandstanding and obnoxious, they took part in a hoax. I mean, that's kind of the simplified kind of right wing media version of it, which, you know, is not totally wrong. But I think there's a deeper on level which this is actually a problem for uh, society because, you know, we have this kind of mantra that goes around in the kind of newfound activist circles that these celebrities populate where, you know, accountability is such a huge deal, right? If accountability is not being taken at all times for all their pet issues, then grievous harm is being inflicted, right? That's often what you hear them talking about, like accountability for people in Hollywood, accountability for people in other areas of the entertainment industry or even in politics. It's kind of taken on this connotation where accountability means if you infringe upon certain left liberal nostrums, you then must be pressured into issuing an apology for that or a statement or doing things in, in view of you know, making amends. But you know, accountability should be a two-way street, you'd think. I mean, if it was not just a slogan, if it's not just a mantra, if it actually has the moral weight that they claim it has, it should be a two-way street in that, you know, if you do a harm, like Katy Perry, I would argue, did, in just stating definitively that this was a, quote, racist hate crime, in that she stoked anxiety and she legitimized a hoax, I would think that there is also an accountability mechanism there that should be forced upon a Katy Perry or should be compelled from her. And it just isn't. And it gets back to the whole incentive structure in which these people operate. 
I mean, it's not a surprise to me that their PR handlers or even they might have themselves concluded that it's better for them to just pretend like they never joined the swarm of people <laughs> stating with utmost certitude that the hate crime occurred. Um, but I think it then is reasonable for us as the lay people or me, somebody with a public platform, but operating under a different epistemological set of assumptions uh, to conclude that they are, you know, not ethical operators, that they really don't take seriously their platforms. Um, or if they do take it seriously, there's such an ethical blind spot that it seems like the right thing for them to do, to, uh, to them anyway, to just pretend like they weren't complicit in a hoax. And, you know, people will assume that my making this point means that I'm just sort of a knee-jerk kind of right-wing bomb thrower and I'm just scoring cheap points against the Hollywood liberals or whatever. And, you know, everybody enjoys that here and there. Um, but again, uh, it would, this would not have drawn my interest if not for the kind of more broad-based societal dynamics that I'm trying to explicate. Um, and so I'm just going to check to see if my attempted com uh, conversation partner has been able to get the app. Okay, not. So I, I guess just now I'll assume that we'll do it. I'll do that with him maybe, uh, I don't know, perhaps even tomorrow. Uh, but I will let everybody know about that. Again, the guy is Tom Battinger. And he, he was the one, you know, and this is why I, I appreciate what Colin affords in terms of opportunities for productive exchanges. Like my idea that this person who had criticisms of me on, on Twitter, which of course is very often not conducive to constructive exchanges. Uh, my idea with, from him was like, look, okay, you know, you have a criticism of me. I think maybe you're, may, you're misrepresenting my opinion, but I feel like there's enough of a germ of an idea here between us that we can explore it and come to some reasonable resolution. And you know, even though there was a bit of slight animosity in his tone at when he first was kind of confronting me, uh, he eventually agreed to, to do something on, on Colin that would not only be interactive between me and him, but also uh, be interactive with others to kind of do like a, almost like a Socratic <laughs> um, uh, public uh, learning session. And, and to me, actually, Colin affords the structure and the, 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 the technological mechanism to accomplish that, which is uh, a big reason why I'm excited about it. Uh, another thing, you know, one thing I would also like to do is, again, like the, the Jesse Smollett thing has just happened to be in the news this week. It's not something I'm obsessed with, right? But when the verdict was handed down on Thursday, I couldn't help but go and look at some of the commentary at the time from some of these celebs who I'm positing don't operate within the most ethical epistemological framework, given their predilection to simply ignore the kind of harms that they've inflicted with their rash and premature statements. Um, but, you know, another thing that I would like to do on Colin is discuss an issue that stemmed from my look, my going around and looking at what was said in 2019, right? Because I put out a clip on Twitter of um, Elliot Page, who uh, was on Stephen Colbert's show shortly after the purported hate crime attack 
and went on a very impassioned rant about how this was caused directly. I mean, don't even get me started on causation, which very few people seem to have a logical grasp of. But the basic point that Elliot Page was making on the Stephen Colbert appearance, again on national TV, was to assert that it was sort of ineluctable that when you have a climate, a political climate where a Mike Pence or a Donald Trump are sowing hate, uh, that you're going to have violent attacks in the street like this. So Elliot Page at the time was making a firm assertion about causality in terms of the reasons this attack was committed. Now, clearly it's a hoax and Elliot Page, just like Katy Perry and just like Emma Watson is not taking any account of it two plus years later. Uh, but the, the kind of ancillary issue that stemmed from my posting of this clip was that I was accused of being transphobic because I said that at the time, Elliot Page was Ellen Page. And that was just an attempt by me to add some additional factual context. Because if you're not aware, as most people in the world probably aren't, that in December of 2020, Ellen, then Ellen Page came out as trans and declared themselves to be Elliot Page, um, you might be a little confused as to what I'm even referring to. Because like in the 2019 clip on Stephen Colbert, this person is presenting as Ellen Page, who is a woman, right? So if I'm, if now it's, I'm saying Elliot and you're not familiar with the whole trajectory of the trans coming out of, of, of Elliot Page, it, it might not be clear to you what I'm saying. And as a journalist, I always strive to be as clear as possible in my public utterances, right? Um, don't always succeed, but at least that's my aspiration. And so it was really just a statement of factual context that I was referring to a person who two years ago was presenting as a different gender as they are now. And yet this caused a giant frenzy. I mean, I was almost shocked, like, because... Uh, not shocked. I sh I'm not shocked by much anymore. But I was startled um, at the uh, fervency of the denunciations that were coming at me simply for posting a clip from 2019 and saying that at that time, this individual was known by a different name and was presenting as a different gender. Apparently, this meant I was dead naming Elliot Page. Now, I've never consciously dead named anyone uh, I think that's pretty crass and cruel you know even if some elements of trans ideology or gender ideology are not always the most logically grounded in my estimation um, that's separate and apart from kind of just the basic courtesy that one I think has an obligation to extend to others and you know going around intentionally, quote, dead naming somebody and referring to them by their prior name or prior gender, just as an act of malice or an act of uh, callous disregard, I think is wrong. So I don't intentionally do that. I was simply making a factual contextual statement in kind of clarifying what it is I was referring to on my public platform. And uh, it caused a giant controversy. I mean, Elliot Page ended up trending on Twitter. Uh, Ellen, the, the name Ellen Page also trended on Twitter, and this was blamed on me. 
Um, and, you know, totally unbeknownst to me at the time when I was drafting the tweet, I ended up being accused of uh, per perpetrating dead naming, which of course is not my intention. Um, and so I guess I'm just saying this as sort of a footnote, but also because, you know, I, I've, uh, you know, since that happened, there have been some trans individuals who have contacted me privately and, and you know, politely, but also um, impassioned. Uh, and they've tried to explain to me why it is they believe that I committed an immoral act by purportedly dead naming Elliot Page. And, you know, as a, a journalistically, my intention in engaging on that subject wouldn't necessarily be to prove that I'm right. Like, I mean, I, I can, I can get into as good of an argument as anybody uh, on occasion, but what I would really want to do is, and I think which Colin would facilitate nicely, is to just kind of interrogate what this disjunction is between myself and these people who are telling me that I committed this grievous immoral act. Um, and, you know, potentially that would be uh, possible to do on this, this platform. And probably it would be better to do it on an audio-based platform than a video-based one um, because... You know, if you're on video, and I've done plenty of video, so I'm aware, you know, people are constantly kind of analyzing your physical appearance and they're commenting on just your, you know, your facial expressions or your gestures or just your general manner that is conveyed by your visual presence, right? And I think that can often be a distraction. And actually, uh, audio seems to negate some of those kind of petty little side observations. And I think that would be uh, particularly helpful uh, in a situation like this where, you know, I don't want, the, the point is to understand where a person is coming from. It's not to uh, evaluate their appearance, right? Um, and so, you know, one of the things I, I think I'm going to do maybe this coming week is uh, invite one of these people to have a more thoroughgoing discussion on, on Colin about, you know, what, what is, because, you know, I actually take the moral claim seriously. You know, a lot of people think that Twitter or whatever, whatever your online engagement is, is just totally frivolous, right? And, you know, people will say whatever, and you shouldn't put too much stock in it. But if I am being accused by a lot of people who feel very morally strongly about what they're saying, uh, doing genuine harm, and this even gets back to why I have criticized these celebrities for not accounting for what I regard as their unethical behavior and prematurely rendering conclusions about the nature of the Smollett attack or now hoax. Uh, if, if there is a genuine ethical belief that is um, authentic and that is real, uh, that I am doing something that causes harm to others, you know, then at the, I think at very, the very least, it's my obligation first as a person to understand why it is that allegation is being made against me. But also journalistically, I think it's helpful for people to have it explained to them calmly, hopefully in a civil manner, uh, the, the nature of that, of that objection, right, uh, or of that viewpoint. Because, you know, it's easy just to snipe at one another, and especially, you know, on the trans issue, there can be you know, some trivialization going back uh, in both directions, because a lot of it, it tends to be preoccupied with the, the physicality of trans people, which I'm not particularly interested in, in for the purposes of public discussion. 
but like if there is like a you know an authentic moral conviction that somebody uh, like me in merely stating at, in what I thought was a factual matter uh, contextual way that Elliot Page was previously known as Elliot as Ellen Page in 2019 you know if, if that rises to the level of such moral uh, reproach for for a, a large number of people then I want to have a better understanding of why it is that they have that conviction and why they feel compelled to uh, express publicly that I'm guilty of this grave moral wrongdoing. Um, and again, journalistically, I think it's fruitful for others to have that spelled out for them so they can have a better understanding. And, you know, even if they don't agree, which, you know, I doubt that I would agree that I with anybody arguing to me that simply making a factual contextual statement in a tweet is genuinely uh, bad in a, in a deep moral sense. I doubt I would come to that agreement, but nonetheless, I'm interested in understanding why that charge is leveled at me. And again, I, you know, in this inaugural episode, I did want to just give some optimistic notes as to how Colin could potentially facilitate a discussion like that in a, in a positive way. Um, so, uh, if you're, if you want to subscribe to me, which of course I urge you to do, uh, I would say maybe within the next couple of days, I'll try to facilitate a discussion like that with, um, one of these maybe trans type activists who <laughs> were extremely angry with me. And, you know, hopefully we could diffuse some of that anger and actually come to some mutual understanding. I mean, I think that that's been my experience generally when, social media based conflicts are taken to a different venue. Now I've even had offline just private. So people have criticized me on the trans subject before in a variety, from a variety of different directions. And I've actually offered in the passage to private discussions with them. And I, I have on occasion, and you know, it's actually somewhat enlightening. Um, again, it doesn't necessarily alter my basic view of whatever it is I'm commenting on that caused them to have such dire opinions of me. Um, but, you know, it's, I think it's healthy to be self-critical enough or at least open enough to expose yourself to this kind of criticism, um, especially if it's thoughtful. Now, it's not, always, of course, going to be thoughtful on most social media, but Colin and other, I, I think it's the latest man, uh, iteration of a technological outlet that could lessen some of those tensions, which kind of impede thoughtful exchange. Um, so especially if you're only out of your way to like proactively invite someone to share a stage with you, it's almost like a gesture of kindness in a way. Um, and you know, that people will be able to listen to it afterwards, which is a feature of Colin. Um, so that's, that's my intention. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to be redundant, in my follow-up episode with this guy, Tom, unfortunately he couldn't uh, join us because of his inability to update his iPhone in time. <laughs> Actually, in order to install Colin, I had to also update my iPhone and it took a long time. So I don't, I don't blame the guy kind of unforeseen circumstances. Um, but, you know, hopefully at least, you know, what I'm outlining here sets the stage for, um, for future dialogues that will be interesting to people and maybe give you them some valuable information and insights and, you know, this is not like necessarily the issue that I'm going to be covering constantly on call. It just happened to be in the news this week and I had commented on it, on it. And then my 
particular situation on Twitter is that sometimes stuff becomes trending topics because I unknowingly generate a giant frenzy of controversy. Um, and now, you know, if, if there's a controversy, you know, to use another cliche, I think it's worthwhile to make it into a quote teachable moment. And uh, that teachability, I think, is is uh, available by way of this this app. Um, but you know, I'll also be discussing different. Uh, you know, if if you follow me on Substack, chances are that on a given week, something I'll talk about on Colin will uh, relate to whatever I'm covering on Substack. Like, for example, yesterday I had an article up that some of you might find interesting about the school shooting in Michigan recently. Um, obviously a heinous attack or a heinous crime, you know, for, for high school students killed and others injured. Um, but like, that shouldn't be the end of the story in terms of evaluating of the crime because the prosecutor, Karen McDonald, who got a lot of airtime in her bringing us charges both against the alleged perpetrator and the alleged perpetrator's parents. Um, And is an elected official elected to her job as prosecutor of Oakland County, Michigan. She actually did something unprecedented, which is she brought terrorism charges against this alleged perpetrator. Now, it's by all accounts the first time in history, in the U.S. anyway, that a school shooter has been charged with a terrorism offense. And this is made possible because in Michigan, there's a state statute that was passed after 9-11 criminalizing terrorism. Now, at the time, the law was criticized by, for example, the ACLU and the Detroit Free Press because it was like a redundancy. Any crime, they argued, that is committed in Michigan and that is a terrorist attack of some sort is already going to be able to be prosecuted using existing statutes like statutes criminalizing, I don't know, murder, criminalizing assault, criminalizing whatever else that a, quote, terrorist might do in Michigan. But the law was nevertheless passed, and 20 years later, it's being used in a vastly different context than anybody at the time seemingly contemplated. And I actually went back and spoke to the major the the state legislator, the state senator, who at the time of the passage of that law in 2002, after 9/11, was the majority leader of the state senate. And number one, I'm sorry to say, but a lot of these state officials, once you talk to them, and I guess the members of Congress as well, but like they don't seem at the top of their game because like this gentleman, his name is Dan DeGroo. Barely had any, any idea of what I was even talking about initially. I mean, he knew vaguely that he was involved in passing and enacting this terrorism statute, which at the time was very novel in, in 2002 in Michigan. Uh, but like, he was very unclear on what the purpose of it was at the time. He kind of thought it had something to do with state with school shootings expressly, which it didn't. So I had to kind of explain to him like what his own law was and his role in passing it. Um, granted it was 20 years ago, but still like it wasn't 200 years ago. I mean, it was (laughs) a a short amount of time ago enough that you think that he would have some like distinct recollections of the thoughts that went into passing such a law. 
Um, but like over the course of the conversation, like I talked to this guy for, I don't know, 40 minutes. And he eventually came to agree with me, at least in part, about the potential pitfalls of bringing forth terrorism charges in the case of a school shooter who none of the available evidence suggests was motivated by anything to do with politics or ideology. I mean, the kid, the only evidence that's been presented about this 15-year-old's motives is that he was sitting in class one day, and uh, the day of the shooting, actually, and he was scribbling doodles of murders and writing, help me, and basically crying out for assistance. And this prompted a emergency conference at the school with the parents, and then he was led back into class and unbeknownst to the school officials had a gun and then commits, obviously, a horrible mass shooting. Um, but, like, as bad as that is, does it really need to be classified as terrorism? And if it is classified as terrorism, isn't that a bit ominous insofar as civil liberties are concerned, given how terrorism has been exploited over the year to curtail civil liberties? So whenever terrorism gets officially uh, designated in a new context, you can be sure that that's not going to be the greatest thing for everybody's civil liberties. I mean, I think that should be a cross-ideological assumption at this point, 20 years after 9-11. And yet, you know, Karen McDonald, the prosecutor, brings these charges, and by and large, she's universally heralded. I mean, first of all, most people don't even notice or care that terrorism charges were brought. But to the extent that it was commented on, she was lauded for it because, of course, this was a terror-inducing act, and it's only right that official terrorism charges will be brought. Well, I mean, an act can be terror-inducing. Like, I could be, quote, terrorized by something in a colloquial sense and still not think that the state should prosecute the thing that terrorized me as an official terrorism crime, right? I mean, that's kind of a different discussion. But when, if you look at her public justifications of why she brought this terrorism charge against the 15-year-old suspected shooter, it's really just all cliches. It's like, oh, you know, if she said... If this isn't terrorism, I don't know what it is. Um, she said that she was bringing the charges on behalf of the, quote, wider community. Um, but, like, that shouldn't be the end of the scrutiny. Like, those are just cliches. This is ultimately the exercise of punitive state power in a vastly new context. And if you don't feel any foreboding by the exercise of terrorism charges in a vastly new context then I would submit that you haven't been sufficiently attuned to the world in the past 20 years, particularly uh, domestic law in the United States. Um, and yeah, so that, I mean, that's what I, what I wrote about. And I can't, and it's almost like I can actually attach this to the Jesse Smollett stuff, believe it or not, in that there just isn't a whole lot of incentive. The, the incentive structure in media today and in the culture today is not conducive to probing the utilization of terrorism charges in this context because you know this was a school shooting uh, a lot of people a lot of liberals in particular and democrats think that gun violence broadly construed is akin to terrorism in its in the, in the harm that it causes and so people want the power of the state or at least Democrat, a lot of democrats do and progressive intelligentsia members they want 
the putative power of, of the state to be deployed in this context to advance what they regard to be progressive ends. Like this woman, Karen McDonald, actually won a primary in 2020 against a Democratic incumbent, so an audacious move, um, on, the, on a platform of being a progressive prosecutor. She was going to usher in progressive criminal justice reform, right? And, you know, fast forward, how is she ushering in this progressive criminal justice reform? By expanding the punitive power of the state, by deploying a terrorism statute that was initially passed to kind of you know combat Al Qaeda or something in 2002, in a vastly different context that nobody who drafted the original bill ever contemplated. So that's her definition of what it means to be a progressive reformer. And you'd think that you know, in a curious fact-based media environment, there would at least be some discussion of whether that's a prudent thing to do. There would be some discussion of potentially this having negative implications for civil liberties in light of everything that's gone on in the past 20 years with terrorism being kind of wielded as a cudgel willy-nilly all over the place. But it just really hasn't happened. I mean, to my, to my knowledge, this article that I published on Substack yesterday is the only really intensive look at the implications of this terrorism charge that's been published anywhere. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn. And you can find some news articles where at least they at least note that the terrorism charge in this case was novel. Um, but there's really been no kind of critical scrutiny of it to any meaningful extent. So, you know, that's the kind of hopefully different angle that I try to take to major stories and, you know, do some reporting on them so it's not just me opining or pontificating aimlessly. Uh, and, you know, I want to then open it up to discussion. Um, so now I'm going to, I think if you're in this room now, you can raise your hand, right? And, and engage or speak if you'd like. Um, so if anybody wants to do that now, please go ahead. You know, anything that you want to chat about that, whether it's the Smollett thing or the the tack on of the uh, the Michigan terrorism charge that I tried to artfully incorporate into my little soliloquy here. Um, maybe if somebody could just like raise their hand, even if they don't want to talk, so I know that the functionality is working, that would be helpful. Um, or if not, that's fine too. And uh, we'll have another discussion like this soon. You know, I... Oh, okay. I'll ask you a question, Michael. Okay. Because I saw a news story today that, um, you know, Erdogan in Turkey, the increasingly authoritarian leader of that country, there was an article about it with him saying that social media was a threat to democracy. And so... Mm -hmm. Uh, it seems like the one thing that authoritarians all over the world agree on. So any comments on that? And, you know, it struck me that you're very good with language that, you know, that this term threat to democracy, it's, um, it's now becoming this ubiquitous euphemism to sort of um, justify censorship. Uh, it's like well, these terms almost means the exact word. <laughs> Of what it what it seems to kind of like people's republic uh, people's republic censorship uh, threat to democracy actually is censorship of 
um, of populist expression. So anyway, those were just a bunch of using. I think it was an article. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It kind of brings. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because it brings. I hadn't seen the Erdogan Erdogan comment, but um, it kind of brings my mind back to like 2009 when you had the Green Revolution in Iran, and everybody was fully on board with the promise of social media at least in the West, like at least in the United States, right? Because they were cheering on these dissidents in, in Iran that were challenging the Ayatollah and um, Ahmadinejad, right? And at the time, most Western elites were heralding social media as like the purest expression of democracy. I and mean, they were almost sycophantic in how much they were venerating it. And uh, one of the reasons that they were saying it had this de- profound democratic potential because it was expanding democratic participation and quote a voice to the voiceless or something to that effect. Um, but now, you know, 12 years later, social media has expanded exponentially, right? So the number of people who can engage in social media and can express their political views or politically organize it has transcended those kind of initial, maybe kind of liberalizing activists who might have been early adopters in 2009. And it's now just a mainstay of life for anybody who wants to engage in the political process. So it's not so much that these elites were so bowled over by the potential for democratic participation as such. It was certain people being elevated in their ability to participate in the democratic process. Um, so that's why, and then if you fast forward to 2016, there was a giant change in how social media was viewed, where it became to be castigated as this threat, um, because they're saying that the insufficient, and when I'm saying they, I'm generalizing, obviously, but when I'm referring to broadly speaking, kind of, uh, liberal elites, people invested in American institutions, where, who thought that Trump was this dangerous interloper. They blamed social media for facilitating excessive democracy, right? And of course, they would never put it that way, right? They would kind of frame it as, you know, social media has allowed for the flourishing of misinformation or it's allowed for hate groups to proliferate. Um, it's allowed for... Um, people who are dangerous to kind of organize amongst themselves and exchange information. Uh, you know, but we're really all those things are, are forms of democratic participation, right? I mean, you could say that you don't like a hate group and maybe they are hateful in a way, but if they're organizing amongst themselves to engage in the democratic process, that's the thing that was heralded in 2009, right? But uh, now what we understand is that it's all contingent, right? It's all contingent on what this kind of organization and information sharing produces politically. And so that's why there was this giant push in 2016 to more stringently regulate the internet. And we see that carrying forth uh, today. I, I mean, I think maybe there's a bit of a change in the tide where people are maybe slightly more aware of the dangers of 
censorship, given that it's, it increasingly seems to affect people across the political spectrum. But at least in the U.S., um, the calls for Internet censorship were based on a fear in elite segments of society that undesirable individuals were kind of harnessing the strength of social media to advance their political ambitions. Um, and so, but, but in doing so, and because they kind of frame their demands for censorship in these lofty terms of protecting democracy or um, defending our constitutional order from collapse or whatever histrionics they might have uh, favored on a given week, they almost kind of pioneered a new rhetoric around social media as somehow threatening to democracy. Um, they initiated this whole rhetorical framework uh, where demands that are ultimately rooted in a craving of censorship end up getting portrayed as somehow this uh, high-minded desire to, to safeguard institutions. And so Erdogan might be right that social media in Turkey is undermining Turkish institutions. Maybe Erdogan is falling uh, out of favor in the populace. I, I, I'm not an expert on Turkey, don't speak the language, uh, but that would not be crazy to me. Uh, but what's now being done, I think, and again, I have to maybe look at the comment first um, that you mentioned, but, but Erdogan can now easily borrow on this sort of whole rhetorical mode that was popularized in the U.S. anyway, and to some extent in the U.K. Uh, and elsewhere in Europe, post-2016, to kind of frame his desire for censorship in these kind of pseudo-lofty terms, where uh, he's saying, he's not saying that he wants censorship as far as I know, probably, because, you know, why would he? The more tactful thing is to say that adversarial speech online is not a threat to him, but a threat to institutions that we must safeguard. Um, and I think, you know, it, it would be the height of irony that uh, some of these autocrats or kind of um, uh, unchecked leaders in, in other states are able to kind of tighten their grip on power because they can borrow from this rhetoric that was put into popular parlance by uh, American officials um, in uh, the period of 2016 to 2020 as a kind of a reaction to Trump. Uh, so I guess that's my, my initial thought. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it all. It looks like we got another caller, so I'll duck out now, but uh, great to, great to have you on the platform. Yeah. Thanks David. Oh, hey, Michael. Uh, hey, how are you? Good. Hey, uh, your your points about the prosecutor charging terrorism are well taken, and I I just wanted to observe and see if maybe you, you might also comment on the fact that this there seems to be a broader trend. Um, in particular, I was thinking of two cases. One, there was. Uh, uh, there was a mass shooting in Great Britain. I don't know. I mean, I think four or five people were shot or killed. And within an hour, this individual was dubbed an incel. 
never really clear to me what that was based on. Um, and then people were making, people on the left were making an argument that this was somehow, that that this was somehow a terrorist attack, um, which really seemed to me to flatten what was going on, that this person clearly had psychological problems. Um, and then uh, I think more recently, uh, there was this letter written by the National School Board Association to the Biden administration asking them to, to investigate unruly parents at school board meetings as terrorists. Um, and I'd also add that um, I think that there's a similar trend uh, going on in denominating uh, hate crimes. And I was thinking of the uh, shooter, uh, I think it was in Atlanta, the spy shooter. It just seems to me that there is a kind of rhetorical usage here, which is um, kind of seeking to create enemies um, uh, and really, uh, you know, in advance, um, in order to advance a, a, a political agenda. And uh, I wonder what you might think about that and whether it might seem whether it's appropriate to kind of tie all those things together. Yeah, you know, I think that those are all good points on the shooting in, in England. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. I'm familiar somewhat with the facts of that case, or at least enough to comment kind of cursorily on it. And I think, yeah, there was this whole rush to proclaim that there was some violent incel ideology motivating the attack. And I think that was drawn on social media statements or commentary from the uh, alleged perpetrator where they might have expressed hostile views toward women or something to that effect. And, you know, maybe the person did have unseemly views about women, but I think this whole reflexive drive to kind of put that in terms of an overarching cohesive ideology um, is dangerous, but it also fits into the terrorism framework that preexisted, you know, this year, right? I mean, so in a, in a way it's, this is almost chickens coming home to roost for a lot of the conservatives. And it wasn't just conservatives, obviously, but the people who, be, who were terrorism hardliners as it related to Islamic terrorism, right? Because there are plenty of instances of, a so-called terrorist attack being committed by somebody who expressed like inchoate fidelity to Islam or to jihad or something. Um, but really their, their motivations seem to be driven primarily by kind of mental distress and, or kind of psychosis or something. And it just found expression in their kind of uh, half formed, avowals of some kind of Islamic conviction, right? Um, that's not to say there aren't actual Islam terrorists that are motivated genu by genuine Islamist views. I mean, uh, a lot of the Al-Qaeda, there's like a whole theology around it, and some and with ISIS as well, but like, that got broadened out into just a Muslim teenager, you know, futzing around on the internet 
maybe get some crazy views imparted to him by watching some preacher and is also like suicidally depressed and then commits some random act. And somehow that gets blown up into a horrible instance of terrorism. Right. And I just don't think, and I think for, for one thing, terrorism kind of inflated the significance of those events, or at least assigning the destination of terrorism inflated the significance because now, if they're not part of like an international terrorism network, I mean, like, what's the point in doing that in terms of terrorism and not just as a murder or something or as like an assault, right? Um, and so I think that that's what you have going on now, but in different contexts, right? So like if a person commits a mass shooting in England and they could be seen as espousing, quote, incel views, the the point of framing that as terrorism is to amplify the emotional salience of the act and also to configure it into this framework of terrorism. And that then allows you to more, you know, fulsomely denigrate the ideology. And maybe it's an ideology that deserves to be denigrated. Right. But, but um, I think this, this, this terrorism uh, kind of conceptual framing has this totalizing effect where like, if it's just a guy, you know, who has some crazy views and then commits a violent act, you know, then that has like these wider societal ramifications. Even in Michigan, I mean, the prosecutor, as I mentioned before, said that she was bringing the terrorism charge in part as uh, like a statement of solidarity on behalf of the quote community. So in England, if a guy is a misogynist or has some, you know, let's say questionable views on on women and then commits a murder or murders. Um, labeling a terrorism is almost done in a, uh, to, on behalf of the wider community that could be said to have been harmed by that act, even if they were not themselves victims, right? Um, and, you know, in a way you understand the logic, right? Because, like, September 11th clearly did negatively affect the United States writ large, even if you were not in the World Trade Center, right? Or even if you weren't on the Wendell Plains, so I mean, there, there is a way in which a dramatic, spectacular act of violence can actually negatively impact someone. Uh, I, I think, it, but, but whether the terrorism framing is at all useful, I think is an extreme doubt at this point. But, but now because, you know, the, the, the liberals have much more, uh, or progressives and people of that inclination have more and more control over, you know, the systems of information promulgation and of the law enforcement apparatus, as with this Michigan prosecutor, um, they can, they can apply their own kind of twist on the terrorism framework and like heighten things for emotional salience uh, when it's within their interests. Um, I, I also think it's, you know, very dubious to uh, assert the existence of some overriding ideology to some of these violent acts uh, where it doesn't meaningfully exist, um, like like it's a ter- somehow it becomes a terrorist cell if a guy is like, on Reddit making incel comments and like communicates with others. I mean, it it it, it inflates a threat where none exists, and you know uses as a basis for bringing like criminal charges in some instances. This idea that this burgeoning terrorist ideology has like traumatic effects on others. Um, Anyway, that's, 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 that's my thought. I, I, th- I think people should be much more cautious about their application of terrorism broadly. Um, but they haven't been. You know, it's been used pretty um, 
pretty willy-nilly since, since 9-11. So it's not surprised that, you know, when a new set of figures wield state power or wield kind of cultural power, that they are then going to appropriate the whole kind of nomenclature of terrorism for their own purposes. Yeah, no, yeah I agree. And I, I would just make one other point because something that I was in, uh, involved in back in the 90s, I, I, I had been writing on the far right, and, I, and after the, when the Oklahoma City bombing happened, it was widely initially perceived or assumed to have been some kind of act as Islamic terrorism. As soon as it was discovered that it was uh, uh, a domestic actor, the terrorism label got dropped. Um, people know, for some reason, you know, people just no longer wanted to see it that way because it was, you know, it was a white guy with an American who did it. And at the time, I felt like that there was a problem with the far right that that there was a potential for for terrorism from from militia organizations and these other groups. And I was actually in favor of broadening the frame. And I now see. Um, I got some pushback from a friend, and uh, I, and I now think that he was right because um, I think that frame has just—it's uh, just been kind of insane how that how that frame has has now expanded, and uh, you know now it's in the hands of uh, uh, you know different prosecutors with different ideologies and different political motives and. Um, you know, really even may- maybe makes me think that we should rethink the whole terrorism frame. Well, yeah. I mean, even after 9-11, it was sort of more of a fringe conversation, but especially on the left, uh, there was this whole debate about, you know, what, does, what is terrorism exactly? You know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, et cetera. I mean, it could, also, it could kind of devolve into cliches. Uh, but, you know, there is some element of truth there. Um, and I guess it just goes to the, the fundamental elasticity of the concept. And when you have a concept as elastic as terrorism, it really is, uh, you know, there, there really is a risk when it gets transmuted into criminal law. Um, like uh, this, this terrorism charge in Michigan as I mentioned before, it was enacted after 9-11. And, it, when, and the idea that the legislators who enacted the law after 9-11 in Michigan uh, because they felt like they needed like a state-based version of the Patriot Act, you know, roughly speaking, the idea that they were like, actively thinking of terrorism in terms of a 15-year-old committing a school shooting after he like, doodled on his notebook about having intrusive, murderous thoughts, I mean, that's, it's ridiculous. Of course that wasn't contemplated at the time. They were reacting to Al-Qaeda-style spectacular attacks and you know, cl- claim that they needed new laws to protect Michigan from those kinds of attacks. And you know, now twenty years later, like look at the context that this law is being used in. It's radically different than anything that was envisioned at the time. And actually, um, as I mentioned in the Substack article, which you might be curious to to read, uh, earlier this year, the state attorney general of Michigan, Dana Nessel, testified before Congress, actually a Homeland Security subcommittee, and advocated for a federal domestic terrorism statute, which kind of gets proposed now and then uh, in relation to certain crimes. I mean, it's uh, after January 6th, there was kind of a a call for it. Uh, Even after the El Paso shooting uh, at the Walmart in, what was it, 2000, 
19, right? Um, yeah, you saw like Democratic presidential candidates calling for a federal domestic terrorism statute as though the local prosecutors in Texas lacked for the ability to prosecute a mass shooter. Of course they didn't lack for that ability, right? I mean, the El Paso shooter is going to be in prison for the rest of his life. Um, and same here. I mean, they, uh, this woman, Karen McDonald, the prosecutor in Oakland County, Michigan, didn't lack for the prosecutorial tools to ensure that this 15-year-old is going to be held to account by the carceral state, right? Um, they're, 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 they're doing it for the purposes of emotional uh, salience. So, so uh, th- th- there could be momentum. I mean, I think it would, there would need to be some kind of spectacular, maybe interstate attack or something. But, you know, there, we, we, we do, there are calls by prominent figures, such as the Attorney General of Michigan, saying that the Michigan model, this law, should be uh, adopted on a federal level. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if that gains additional momentum uh, by this new notion that was just invented by Karen McDonald in Michigan that any kind of random school shooting, even if there's no discernible political motive behind it, is now an act of terror. I mean, that could be a great way for an, uh, an ambitious Democratic politician who wants to, like, campaign on the, on quote, gun violence, say, look, look, if we want to get tough on gun violence, this is what we need to do. I mean, that's not, that seems totally plausible to me that could, it could happen. And I'm, um, I'm actually pretty confident that it will. And, you know, this, that, that's why I think it was, it's worth, like, paying attention to what happened in Michigan recently because it has some foreboding um, implications for how, how this issue is going to be handled going forward yeah and, and and you mentioned that i'm gonna just make this one comment and, uh, and, and mute myself off but in january 6th the, the well insurrectionists as they're called which i find dubious or rioters would be a better term for me have also been branded as terrorists and it just seems to me that this is this is really uh done for a rhetorical and, and political effect. Well, yeah, and I've actually written about this to some uh, extent also. Uh, nobody who participated, unlike in Michigan, where this state statute was used, right, in the federal prosecutions of the January 6th participants, I would say, I would agree that rioters is probably the better term than, quote, insurrectionists. But none, last I checked, <laughs> have actually been charged with a terrorism offense. And people will say, oh, that's because there's no terrorism statute. Well, there are terrorism statutes in the federal code, and you could potentially use them if you wanted to be enterprising as a prosecutor. But none of them actually have actually been charged with terrorism offenses. What they have done, meaning what the Department of Justice has done, is that in the sentencing phase, like there was a case in uh, July, where in the sentencing phase, where one of the first people who uh, pleaded guilty to a, a felony, it was a nonviolent offense, right, just basically trespassing, more or less. Um, what they do is that in arguing for maximum prison time for this defendant who had pleaded guilty, they kind of roped in invocations of domestic terrorism in the, in the sentencing phase. So they didn't have to face the burden of proof of actually charging this individual with a terrorism crime. Um, they just used, they just invoked domestic terrorism by saying that this individual participated in a domestic terrorist uh, terrorist attack, and so it's like a it's like a legal um, backdoor thing uh, with like kind of specious reasoning. 
that they've used to kind of tar certain January 6th participants as terrorists without having to formally charge them because it might not hold up um, if they were to do so. Uh, but I, I guess it just goes back to the expansion of terrorism as a conceptual framework that now is like has no bounds to it. I mean, if it can be used in a school shooting, uh, it's the, the, it's hard to see the limit in where such a such a uh, statute could be used, especially if people like Dana Nessel in Michigan get their way and there is a uh, federal statute enacted. I think it's probably unlikely, uh, given the margin in Congress in that right now, and there will be maybe some progressive Democratic opposition to that. Um, but, you know, you never know. Uh, it, it, all it takes is one giant, quote-unquote, terrorist attack that pe- lawmakers feel like they need to rush to enact laws in response to. Uh, all right, everybody. Well, thank you for uh, tuning in to this first episode. Um, one of the joys of Colin is that I get to immediately edit this and, and put it out. So uh, if you missed the earlier portion, uh, take a listen to it. And uh, I'm going to be doing probably another episode, maybe tomorrow or Monday, with this guy who had wanted to chat with me about the whole Smollett issue and like what is the responsibility of public figures who end up making factually incorrect statements about hoaxes. Um, All right. Well, uh, thanks again, everybody. And uh, we'll do it again soon. Bye-bye.